please stand for the reading of God's word. Um, today's scripture is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. During these many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is God's word. Amen. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to the book of Exodus as we pray together this morning. Just pray with me. Father God, it is a joyous season. As we approach Christmas and the celebration of the coming of your Son into the world, we pray that you would be at work in us to remind us of the great hope that we have because of his coming. We pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning to see that this has always been your will. It's always been your desire to send your Son, that your presence might be here among us, that we might be delivered into your very presence, your throne room before your face in the midst of your people forevermore. We pray, Lord, these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, you may have heard that a few weeks ago, Disaster struck our nation in a way that no one saw coming. For several days afterward, it was a national headline. People across the country were dismayed, outraged, and took to social media to make their disappointment known as far and wide as they could. The disaster occurred when, after months and months of anticipation, tickets for the pop star Taylor Swift's new <laughs> concert went on sale. The demand was so intense that websites crashed, and before long, ticket sales were halted altogether. The company that was responsible for the sales process said afterward that they were not prepared for the extraordinary demand, and that that is what had caused the problems. It was such a catastrophe, in fact, that members of Congress have spoken about it and weighed in on how this issue should be dealt with. I wasn't one of the people who was spending days online trying to get a hold of these concert tickets, but watching it unfold has been fascinating. It was a moment for not just America, but many people around the world of such intense anticipation that websites crashed because of the demand, national news outlets covered it for days, and lawmakers in Washington, D.C. are weighing in, and the situation, even now, still hasn't really been resolved. Now, whether or not you can relate to the excitement uh, that some people feel that Taylor Swift is coming to town, you know, you, you know what it means to look for the coming of something that you have been waiting for. Whether it's graduation or retirement, a reunion with a loved one, a vacation that you've been saving up for for years, or the present, perhaps, that is already wrapped and sitting under a tree at your house with your name on it, Patience is a virtue that we all have to learn at some point or another because we all know what it means to eagerly wait for something. As we continue our journey toward Christmas this Advent, uh, this morning we're looking backward into the Old Testament 
to see how the promise of Christmas and the coming of Christ was anticipated and eagerly awaited long before Mary and Joseph journeyed to Bethlehem. God's assurance to his people and his promise of their redemption is written on every single page of Scripture, and it is, in fact, what all of history leading up to that day anticipates. And we share in the joy of every longing heart as our Savior has come. And even now, as we look backward to the book of Exodus this morning, we renew our anticipation for His return. So this morning, we are looking back at the book of Exodus, written more than a thousand years before the night that Christ was born, to see that God's desire has always been to redeem His people and to draw close to them, and that the day of the accomplishment of that promise is one that He has eagerly anticipated for longer than we could fathom. So our goal this morning will be to take a bird's eye view of the book of Exodus as a whole, to see how God has never forsaken us, will never forget us, and has ordained that the day that He would deliver us into His own presence. Rather than zooming in on a specific passage of Scripture, which is what we typically do here at Westgate in our preaching, we're going to try and see the book of Exodus as a whole, which is a challenge, perhaps more of a challenge than I realized when I said that I would do it, but we're going to go for it. I am convinced that the book of Exodus helps to prepare our hearts for Christmas. Last week, we kicked off our celebration of Advent, and Danny preached from Philippians 2 about the humility of Christ. And I love what he said about how the gospel is the heart of Christianity, and the humility of Christ is at the very heart of the gospel. So, it is the heart of the heart of Christianity. Christ equal with the Father in glory, deliberately laid aside that glory to come into the world that He made. And not just that, but to take the form of a servant, as Paul writes, taking on flesh so that He might dwell with us as one of us and could shed His blood for our salvation. It is a humility that we can barely comprehend, barely scratch the surface of. Because even if we understand what it means for someone to step down from honor to serve the needs of others, we can really only theorize about the immeasurable heights of glory from which Christ condescended in order to come here and dwell among us. It was love that compelled Him and a humble heart that enabled Him to become our God who is with us. And this morning, as we look at the book of Exodus, we'll see that this has always been God's heart, and that the first Christmas, when it came 2,000 years ago, was the fulfillment of what all of Scripture had anticipated, what God had promised, and what the very heart of God had long awaited. Exodus may seem like a strange book to turn to during Advent. I'll be the first to admit, it doesn't seem like a very Christmassy book. But throughout the story that it tells, we see the heart of God in a way that gives us deeper and deeper joy in the birth of Christ. It begins about 400 years after the end of the book of Genesis, when a small family had moved to Egypt to escape and survive a famine. They were the descendants of Abraham, to whom God had made a promise of blessing. And in the time that elapsed between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, that small family had become a nation of hundreds of thousands of people. And the Egyptians, who were playing host to this family, saw this as both a threat and an opportunity. So, they enslaved the Israelites and put them to work. 
And in their captivity, the people groaned because of their slavery and cried out to God for help, which we heard in the passage that was just read to us from Exodus chapter 2. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And that's what the first half of this book is about, the surprising way that God chose to deliver these people into freedom. He heard their cry for rescue from slavery, and he answered it. But the very next verse, verse 24, reminds us that this is a much, much bigger story than that. We read in verse 24 that God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. What's about to happen here is bigger than a confrontation with Pharaoh. It is a chapter in the story of redemptive history that was begun centuries earlier and is moving toward an ultimate culmination in the millennia to come. God remembered His covenant promises, which is not to say that He had forgotten them, and now something has jogged His memory and they've been brought to mind. It's a way of saying that God has held His promise close, and the time has come to act on it. It's a reference to Genesis chapter 15, where God told Abraham that Through him, God would create a nation, and that these people would receive from him a place to call their home, a promised land in which he would bless them, and then through them the entire world. And as he makes this covenant promise to Abraham, he says this in chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years.'" But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God knew that the family who would become a nation of Israel would be slaves in Egypt, that they would be forced to serve there. But He promised that it would not last forever, and that a day would come when He would bring them out. Now, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, centuries have passed, but God has not forgotten His promise. The time has come to keep it. So, this book is part of a much larger story, and in the way that God keeps His promise of rescue in this book and in what happens afterward, He reveals His own heart and His love for His people, all of His people, then and now. Throughout the Old Testament, and particularly here in the book of Exodus, there are events which theologians refer to as theophanies. A theophany is the appearance of the presence of God in a stunning display of His glory and overwhelming majesty. Now, they're peppered throughout the whole Old Testament. For example, when God appeared to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah says that he sees God and the train of His robe filled the entire temple, which is Isaiah's way of conveying how small he suddenly felt in God's presence. And the book of Daniel records a mysterious appearance when three young men are thrown into a fire for refusing to worship the Babylonian king, and others look into that fire to see what's happening there, and instead of seeing the three men dead in the fire, they see four men, alive and well and unharmed. David describes what he saw when he was delivered from the adversaries who had sought his life when the presence of God suddenly appeared and rocked the foundations of the earth, and his voice thundered from heaven. These events, theophanies, are often terrifying experiences for whoever was there to witness them. Isaiah 
when he found himself in the presence of God, did not talk about how amazing it was, like he was standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon, seeing something truly beautiful and awe-inspiring. He was not starstruck, like he was meeting his favorite movie star. He was not overjoyed, like he had just reunited with an old friend. He was so afraid and overwhelmed in that moment that the only thing he said was, woe is me. Theophanies show us that most of the time God shields us from His unrelenting, immeasurable, and fearsome holiness. He protects us from the blindingly bright light of His presence. For Isaiah, the glimpse of God that he saw when the train of his robe filled the temple made him afraid because in its light he saw his own sin more clearly than he ever had before. And he figured that he was about to be destroyed because of it. If it weren't for that sin, if it weren't for the sin that corrupted Isaiah's heart, that experience would have been very different for him. Rather than fear, he would have felt utter peace and contentment. Rather than crying out, woe is me, he would have joined in the heavenly chorus that he saw there, joyfully joyfully declaring the holiness of God. It was sin that made the presence of God a fearful thing to him. We see the reason for that in the very first pages of the Bible. After Adam and Eve succumb to the temptation of pride and they disobey God, typically what we think of is that after that happened, God cast them out of the Garden of Eden, which He did. But before that happened, they made the first move. When sin entered the world through their rebellion, Genesis 3.8 says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, In the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Before God cast them out, they ran from Him because suddenly something had changed and they feared to come face to face with Him. It was an immediate and instinctual response. They didn't talk about it or make a plan. They just ran when they heard His footsteps because they already knew that something had changed, and now he was dangerous. For the same reason that God's presence terrified Isaiah and made him cry out in despair, Adam and Eve are trying to put distance between themselves and the holiness of God, because for them and for Isaiah and for all of us, it is a frightening thing to behold. But in the theophanies of the Old Testament, God lets a sliver of the unimaginably bright light of His holiness pierced through. So the experience is something like visiting a nuclear power plant. All week long, I tried to think of an illustration that was better than this, and I couldn't. It's just the best I could think of. It's like visiting a nuclear power plant. Somewhere inside that nuclear power plant, there is a nuclear reactor. And even though I don't know a whole lot about nuclear reactors... I've seen enough movies to know you're not supposed to get close to one. Whatever is happening in there is dangerous. So, during your visit to this nuclear power plant, you can get close. You can can be in the room adjacent, separated from the nuclear reactor by a very thick concrete and lead-reinforced wall. Because you know that if you were to just open the door and walk in, You'd be a goner within minutes or maybe even seconds. You can't just waltz in there and walk around. 
To do so would mean certain death because the power on the other side of that wall is something that no person can withstand. It is the same with the presence of God. His holiness is a force beyond all human strength, and our sin makes it radioactive to us. Yet, God, with great care, with great carefulness and mercy, opens the door just a crack, just enough to see that there is power on the other side. Unlike anything we've ever known, and unlike any power in the created order. And He does this not to make us afraid, but because His desire is to restore what was lost in the failure of Adam and Eve when they ran from God, to turn danger and fear into joy and peace. What we see in these moments is that God's heart is to be near to us, to wrap us up in His presence and have us not be afraid, to invite us to know Him, not merely academically, but to be part of His family, to bask in His holiness and enjoy His presence rather than to run from Him and live lives of fear. The theologian Vern Poitras has written that theophanies are particularly intense and spectacular expressions of a broader theological theme, namely that God undertakes to be present with His people. This is His desire, to be with you. We sometimes think of Christianity as a commitment to a lifestyle or commitment to a set of rules or intellectual assent to a set of theological and doctrinal ideas. But what we see in Scripture is that God thinks first and foremost in terms of a relationship, to be near to His people as within the Trinity the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are near to one another, to restore what was lost when Adam and Eve fled from God. And in the book of Exodus, on every single page, we see that central desire of God's heart play out. He speaks from a burning bush, inviting Moses to come near and warning him that the place where he is standing is the holy ground of God's own presence, but he invites Moses to draw near. And as he draws close, the passage says that Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He calls Moses to be his servant and prophet and the one who will confront Pharaoh and lead the people out of their slavery in Egypt. When Moses objects to that calling, he gives several excuses about why he shouldn't be given this assignment, and at every turn, God's response is some variation of the phrase, I will be with you. I will be present with you. When Pharaoh refuses to free the enslaved Israelites, he does so as one who thinks of himself as a God among men, worthy of worship and the fear of his subjects. And so God sends plague after plague after plague, each one deliberately designed to demonstrate the weakness of this Pharaoh who considers himself a God and to prove that there is only one God in heaven and He is inviting you to know Him and to know His name. And at multiple points along the way, He explains very clearly that He's doing this specifically so that even Egypt will know His name. Later, when the Israelites are finally released from Egypt, God tells them to turn back from their fleeing and encamp in a very specific place that He, that he t directs them to, along the banks of the Red Sea. 
But rather than just giving these instructions to Moses, he demonstrates that he is present with them in their flight by appearing before them as a pillar of cloud by day, which will guide them along the way, and a pillar of fire by night, which will guide them along the way, to the specific place that he has specified along the banks of the Red Sea. And while they're encamped there, the Egyptians had a change of heart, and Pharaoh sent his army to recapture these Israelite slaves that he regrets that he has let go. God knew that this was going to happen and had his people camp in this specific place beside the sea where there was no escape route. And the reason that he did this was that the people, despite all that they had just seen, were still convinced that the real power that they needed to fear was Pharaoh and his army. When the Egyptians came into view, we read that they panicked and feared greatly. And they turned to Moses and they asked him, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've brought us out into the wilderness to die? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone and let us serve as slaves because it's better for us to serve the Egyptians and live than to come out here and die in the middle of nowhere? They were afraid of the Egyptians. But God tells them in chapter 14, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be silent. And then he caused the sea itself to part for them, and they walked across it on dry land. And afterward, when the Egyptians tried following, the sea crashed down on them, and they were swallowed up in it. And the whole thing happened in this way, because God told them to camp at this specific place, and he guided them there with his very presence, so that when the Egyptians arrived, the Israelites would have nowhere to run but to the providential care of God for them who was present with them. On every page of this book, God is expressing His desire to be close to these people and to draw them into His presence. With the, de with the defeat of Pharaoh, God proved that He has no rival and showed His people that He is and always will be for them. He cares about them, and He will be their defender. A few chapters later, the people arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, where the second half of the book takes place. And on that mountain... God meets with His people in one of the most dramatic theophanies in all of Scripture. We read that the mountain was shrouded in a cloud, that the earth shook, and that the voice of God thundered out across the land. The people were frightened, this time frightened of something that was worthy of their fear, because this was yet another glimpse of the might and the awesome glory of the God that they had just seen squash Pharaoh like a bug. While at Mount Sinai, Moses built up his courage and asked to see God's glory. He, he asks for what God has clearly revealed to be his desire, to see it face to face. And God replies, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. So he sets Moses in a little gap in the rocks, and he shields him while he passes by and then lifts his hand and Moses sees his back. He shielded Moses from his own glory and drew near to him, drew near to him in a way that Moses could actually survive. And he did both of these things because of his grace and mercy that he has extended to Moses and these people. And that, I think, is why so much of what remains of the book of Exodus about a third of it, is filled with the very specific instructions for the construction of something called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent that could be packed up, moved around from place to place as the Israelites continued their journey from Egypt. 
It was a sanctuary, the very center of Israel's religious practice and the place where they would worship God and make their offerings to Him. It was in use until the people settled in their own land and built a temple of stone. The design for this tabernacle that God outlines in the book of Exodus is essentially three distinct spaces. The outermost space was like a courtyard, and it contained an altar for sacrificial offerings. Inside that, was there, there was an enclosure that held other items for worship and religious ceremony. It was a holy place that God had set apart for very specific rituals and practices. But within that was an even smaller space called the Holy of Holies, and it was divided off from everything else by a very heavy curtain, a barrier that isolated it or shielded it from everything else. And it was in that room that the people placed the Ark of the Covenant at God's instruction, where the very presence of God would come to dwell among His people. In fact, that's what the word tabernacle actually means. Its literal meaning is dwelling. And about a third of the book of Exodus is taken up by the very detailed instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and the purposes of each part of the design. So, we are missing a whole lot of what, Exodus, of what Exodus has to say if, when we think about this book, what we mainly think of is Moses telling Pharaoh, let my people go. Instead, the structure of this book is a paradigm for all of redemptive history, that God, in His grace, wills not only to deliver His people from bondage, but into His very presence. What we see on every page of this book is the way that God invites His people to know Him, to see His glory, and in the design for the tabernacle that He gives them, to dwell with them, to be close to them. The whole book is about the ways that God mercifully draws His people close to Himself. All of it comes to a crescendo in the last paragraph of the last chapter of the book. The people have built the tabernacle. They have followed God's meticulous instructions for every bit and bob of that tent and the structure and every curtain rod and every, every piece of jewelry that's supposed to go into the construction there. And, 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 they've, and they've placed the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. They have followed every detailed instruction for which furniture to put where and how to make offerings at the altar in the courtyard. And it says in chapter 40, Moses finished the work and the cloud, the cloud that had been leading the people by day, the very presence of God, since back in chapter 13, that cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It is what the whole book of Exodus has been building up to when the presence of God would dwell among His people, and everything seems to be exactly as it should. People have followed God's instruction, they've built the tabernacle, and God's presence has filled it. Everything seems as it should be, except for one small detail. After reading that the glory of the Lord filled the temple, the passage says, Moses was not able to enter the tent. Not much explanation is given for that, and that's it. The book ends. So, even though God is drawing near to His people, there is still something standing in the way. The presence of God is still dangerous to them. It isn't like it was before, before Adam and Eve ran from God. 
at the very highest moment in this book, the moment that everything else in this amazing story of deliverance has been building up to, we are left waiting, anticipating what this whole book anticipates, that God would dwell with His people, knowing that it is God's desire to dwell with them, but wondering how in the world it could possibly come about. Until, on a quiet night in Bethlehem, almost 1,500 years later, God came to us. In humility, He took on flesh and came into the world that He made. The King of all kings, the maker and keeper of the universe itself, who holds both the planets in their orbits and the atoms together that make those planets, the one with the power to rule over empires and kingdoms like Egypt, the one whose very presence makes mountains shake, makes the brave afraid, and makes the proud kneel in reverence. This God who reveals himself in the theophanies of the book of Exodus and the events of these people's deliverance, who demonstrates that it's, it is his heart's desire to restore a relationship with these people who have scorned his goodness and run from him, was born as a helpless child in an unimportant town to parents who were subjects of a ruthless empire and a malicious king. It is the ultimate theophany, the ultimate expression of God's will for his people to be close when he literally came to dwell among us. And it is the answer to the longing we feel at the end of the book of Exodus when Moses could not go into the presence of God. He couldn't go because for him, the same thing that had always made God, God's presence dangerous remained. Moses, like all the people, was still full of sin, full of pride, full of the impulse that had made Adam and Eve turn from God and his good rule in the first place. He, along with everyone else in Israel, could only get so close to the place where God's presence dwelt among them, but they could not go inside. The hope of Christmas is that God keeps his promise and fulfills the eager anticipation of this book for deliverance from powers even greater than Egypt and slavery and chains. Taking on flesh, the Son of God became one of us so that with our blood in his veins, it might be spilled for our salvation. And in that moment, the curtain, which had kept the people safe from the Holy of Holies and God's presence there, was torn in two. In Christ's name, the people of God are swept into the fullness of his glory and grace, where they no longer fear or say, woe is me, but rejoice with hearts that are full and glad. By grace, through faith, God counts as ours the righteousness of his Son, so that we can enter his presence, not with fear, but with joy. For ancient Israel, it was the hope of a coming deliverer. For us, it is the hope of his return. Looking for the day that is described in the last chapter of the whole Bible when no longer will there be anything accursed, which is to say, there will be no need to fear the holiness of God, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be among His people, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His light will be on them. No, a night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp nor sun, for the Lord God will be their light. It is the day that we long for and await with eager anticipation. And what's amazing is that God longs for that day too. In fact, 
His gladness at the coming of that day is far greater than we will ever know. What Exodus helps us see is that ever since Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, God has looked ahead to the joyful forever in which all of his people are gathered together in his house, where every longing is perfectly satisfied by his presence. If you are unsure about Christianity, and you you feel like maybe this all sounds too good to possibly be true, I want to invite you to consider that maybe you're here this morning because the God of the universe is at work in your life, and that He has had you in mind for longer than you could possibly know. That when He was revealing His glory to the nations in the events of the Exodus, He was thinking about you too. That when He saw His Son laid in a manger in Bethlehem 1,400 years later, He saw you and had you in mind. That when He saw His Son laid or hung on a cross 33 years after that, it was for you and that He had you in mind. And that as you pause to consider whether maybe it really is true, that even as you pause to consider that, that He waits to meet you with an eager expectation that defies our understanding and surpasses every feeling of joyful anticipation that we have ever felt in our lives. And because it is His unbreakable will to pour out His grace, we can rest in the promise that we see in the book of Exodus, and which is kept for us in the coming of Jesus Christ. That God breaks the chains of slavery to sin and guilt and brings us safely home to His presence. Let's pray together. Father, it is a joyful season. We are glad to remember your your love for us today and the ways in which you keep all your promises to us. We pray that you would give us joy in knowing that your heart is to save us and deliver us safely into your presence. We stand in awe that from the very beginning your will has always been to bring rebels and sinners to receive forgiveness. There is nothing we have to give you in return but the joyful praise of thankful hearts, and we pray that you would write that joy in our hearts as we draw nearer and nearer to Christmas. We pray these things in the name of your Son, in whose name we draw close to you today. Amen.